Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Wendy Seifred and welcome to the Anxiety Hour. This is a podcast where we explore the weird, scary, funny, complex, and surprising ways that mental health impacts our lives. Today we're chatting to Honor Eastley, a writer, artist, podcaster, and mental health care worker who's made a career out of talking about the stuff most of us really, really don't want to talk about. Her podcast, Being Honest With My Ex and Starving Artist, explored love, heartbreak, rejection, anger, cash, creativity, and class. In her newest podcast, an ABC production called No Feeling Is Final, she tracks the sometimes surprisingly mundane realities of living with suicidal thoughts. Across our chat, she opens up about the awkwardness of making a career out of your deepest fears and feelings. She also explains the unique experience of having a twin, especially when your twin doesn't share the same mental health concerns as you. Across the show, we touch on issues around suicide. Please be conscious if you've been affected by this in your own life. So I am asking everyone the same question to start with. Pretty obviously, the name of the podcast gives it away. Why don't we begin with you telling us a little bit about your anxiety? Oh, my anxiety. (laughs) I was thinking about it on the way here. And there's a really great musician and artist who's local. His name's Grant Grunwald. He goes under the name HTML Flowers. He has this great song called Spirit Double. And... I looked into that song and I was like, what is a spirit double? What is that? And then I looked into the history of spirit doubles, which is also has kind of been associated associated with doppelgangers. And it's kind of like having a, a version of you that's kind of evil. And this is a really, really old idea. So it's kind of like an evil twin has a similar kind of ring to it. And I think that for me... I have two sort of versions of anxiety. One is like the everyday variety, which is just kind of hanging around. And the other is this kind of spirit double, evil twin, doppelganger variety. Um, And that's kind of a really significantly different experience. And I I call that like when when the evil twin doppelganger anxiety is around, that's like when I'm in Doomtown. So that's like a really encompassing, overwhelming, anxious experience. And the other is like, oh, that person at that party, I'm not sure if they like me or not. Yeah, that's actually a really cool place to start because something I think a lot about is when, obviously, we're having this really big moment with mental health around the world where, like, we're talking about it more, we're talking about it more eloquently than ever before. But there's this kind of conversation about, well, what actually is anxiety and what is just, like, stress or nerves or... Just like everyone feels bad sometimes and has a tough time. Yeah, I don't know. Like I I feel like it gets kind of blurry about those distinctions. And also I'm not necessarily sure how useful they are sometimes. Like I understand where that's coming from, which is that we want to be able to take the severity of people's emotional pain seriously. But sometimes it can come 
sometimes that can like lead to just like trying to put everyone in different boxes as well when actually what happens with anxiety is it's often a really isolating experience and so we want to be doing the opposite of that which is usually about connecting with other people um, through whatever experiences you're having so I, I don't have a necessary answer but I think it's a tricky kind of thing of like how do we both take the thing very seriously and then how do we not try and other people in the process especially when it's something like through this you know growing mental health conversation and it's something we've chatted about in this podcast with other guests where well if everyone feels like this is it even actually a condition or do we need to just kind of maybe re-examine what normal is or like healthy and feeling good is yeah and I think that that's I mean to be honest that's actually something that I've thought about a lot and a lot of my work is around. So I do another project called um, the Big Feels Club, which is kind of a social experiment in trying to get together people with big feelings uh, (laughs) because I found that with my own anxiety and with my own painful what the shit is happening stuff, uh, that talking with other people who've had similar experiences has been one of the most helpful things Um, so and I found that that was often a really hard space to find in some ways even though we still have we're having a lot more conversations around mental health it can sometimes still be kind of hard to find really authentic places to to talk to other people about what does this mean to you what are your weird things and that's why I like um, projects like this podcast I think a lot of people who make media say that, you know, I want to talk about the things people don't want to talk about, but they're actually talking about things people love talking about, like sex or (laughs) politics or kind of juicy topics that maybe you wouldn't talk to your mum about, but are actually like pretty natural to discuss. Looking back on your recent projects, you're really interested in stuff that people really don't want to talk about, (laughs) like money. um, You did a podcast with your ex-fiance, like really tender points. And I'm kind of interested, firstly, why? I mean, it's obviously you're putting yourself consistently through the most anxiety-inducing <laughs> conversations for someone who has anxiety. Um, so, yeah, let's start with that. Why? Um, it's funny that you mentioned those projects because the project that I'm working on at the moment that is just about to launch is a narrative memoir podcast about my own experiences of being suicidal. So it's like... <laughs> like pushing the envelope even further and that was a really like emotionally challenging project because I had years of recordings of me you know I did a year and a half of um, group therapy programs with a hospital I was in psych hospital at one point and I had all these recordings of my life through all these experiences that I had to then like it's the first time that I've worked with other people and I had to give all those recordings to a producer and be like, you can listen to them and then let's like put them into a good format to tell a story. Um, But in answer to your question, why? I think that for me, and I kind of hate this because I think it's a very um, cliche sort of response, but often, you know, when I'm talking about that doomtown space, these projects are often a way of working through some of those experiences and making sense of them or finding answers. So like the last project I did, Starving Artist, which was about 
um, conversations with creatives about money, which featured you, Wendy, in one of the most popular episodes of the season, how to how to negotiate a raise. Um, that was really, I was at this point where I was in my mid-20s on uh, Facebook, you know, everyone that wasn't in the creative fields was doing stuff like buying houses and having babies and <laughs> getting admitted to the bar to be lawyers or, you know, becoming doctors that were like in charge of other people's lives and stuff. And uh, I was like, oh, shit, maybe I've like completely fucked this up. And I actually don't really feel like I have a very good handle on how to make a living in in the creative industries. And that is causing me so much anxiety to the point that, like, I don't know how to live. Does that make sense? So that's really where that project came from. The other thing is that when I finished that the first season of that project, I was in, like, a really bad place. Like, I finished that show, and it was by many accounts a really big success. But I went through about six months of really questioning whether I wanted to do that kind of thing anymore and what I wanted to do next. I found it so funny that I did this project to be like, I'm going to find the answer. Like, I'm going to interview all these people. I'm going to ask the questions that I'm too afraid to ask usually. I'm going to figure out how it works. And then at the end, I was just completely burned out. And it really was a labor of love. And in the same position, I would make the same uh, choices, I think. But it didn't fix everything. And I, I still had a lot of questions by the end. And it was actually an example of all the things that <laughs> everyone was saying in the podcast not to do often. We always get told that talking about mental health stuff is cathartic. And, you know, it's this narrative you hear all the time, people making music about it or making art about it and it being a way to process it. But, I mean, there's also an element for you when your work is so much about examining the things that make you feel bad I mean, it's kind of like prodding at a sore tooth all the time. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. And uh, in during that six months, I had many a fantasy to, like, delete everything and kind of start all over again. Because, yeah, you're right, it does prod at a sore tooth. And the other thing is I think that, you know, I've worked in mental health. I recently did a project kind of researching how we use storytelling ethically in mental health, uh, particularly for fundraising or social awareness, rah, rah, rah. Like, what does it mean for someone to tell their story as part of a public awareness campaign or a fundraising campaign? How do we do that ethically? And what are the effects on that person? And I remember talking um, with people who worked in mental health organisations and the reality is everyone wants the story, but also the other thing is, like, if you're going to go apply for a job, people are going to Google you. <laughs> and they're going to make judgments based on what they see. And so that is something that has really plagued me ever since I started doing more kind of vulnerable stuff. And that is a reality. And for me, because a lot of my kind of top 10 hits are around career stuff, um, it's something that can really get under my skin in quite a significant way. What's the kind of fear there? Um, that I look like a crazy nut job, like, and that no one would give me a job, which is, like, which is, like, I know, I know intellectually is not true because I've 
I've done a lot of work and I've done a lot of work that's based on my lived experience, but I still have a sticking point on it. It's just still something that I'm really afraid of. I mean, it is that classic creative syndrome where you're you're taking your own experiences and sometimes the experiences of other people and you're making an economy out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the equation changes when you do that. It's very different. And I think for me, that's why one of the things I've noticed is that it's really, really important to be connected with, to people who feel like they don't fit in in the way that you do or are doing similar kinds of work. Um, so I have a small crew of a few artist friends who are doing similar kinds of work. And I know that it's really important for me to be connected to them. You run a lot of projects around shared experiences, but can you give us an example of a time when that offered you a level of comfort or clarity? One of them, people talking about how they don't like travel and they always thought there was something wrong with them for not liking travel. And for me, the last time I went and did a big travel, um, which was the only time I've done a big travel, I had a complete like nervous breakdown. So I'm kind of afraid of experiences like that. I always thought I was a shit person because of it. Because everyone's like, yeah, gap year, let's go, love it. Um, And I've just, I'm just, that doesn't excite me because I'm like, "Ah, what if I lose my shit? Um, (laughs) And so it sounds really kind of perfunctory or just kind of, it's, it's not really that that interesting but um hearing other people talking about how they hate travel I was like oh yeah it's fine if I don't like if I don't like traveling it's okay I can save a lot of money (laughs) that is so true I personally do like traveling but I do have people in my life that don't and it's like a dirty secret people are always like when are you going on holiday next or like if you stay home for two weeks instead of going somewhere you feel like you have to have like an excuse for like oh I'm, I'm trying to save money or I'm I just had a lot of stuff to do or I had a staycation. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's like you spend your whole life curating a nice place at home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's I, I bring that up actually because it's just not something I had considered I was shaming myself for for so long and it's like so unnecessary. <laughs> and it wasn't until I started talking about that with other people that I realised how unnecessary it was to like get, you know, to get into myself about that. You mentioned that it was during travelling that you sort of lost your shit. I'm always interested, so you have had kind of pretty serious mental health episodes. You've been suicidal, you've been hospitalised. I think for a lot of people who have mental health issues, that's, and it's something I've chatted about on this podcast before, that's kind of the, the greatest fear of like what happens if I lose control and I lose control of my own mind. Yeah. As someone who has gone through that and then come out of it and probably gone through it again and come out of it, <laughs> I mean, how does it change your relationship to mental health where you've kind of lived through the worst case scenario? Yeah. I mean, so I would say first, I don't think I've lived through the worst case scenario. Like, I think that, you know, from my perspective, it's been the worst case scenario. But I know that my experiences or even just my experiences of using the mental health system have been very privileged compared to a lot of people. Like, I've never been forced treatment. I've never been, like, physically harmed which can happen, and I know people that that's happened to, and that's a really traumatic experience, um, which can really add to it. Being suicidal is up there. It's like a big fear of mine. Um, And it's also a reality of my life. So 
you know, I think I've had particular episodes probably every three or four years. There's like a six-monther, and that is probably one of my greatest fears. It, it's, it really, really sucks. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's funny because I've finally gotten to a point where at the, at the conclusion of most of those, I think that I have the answer and that it's not going to happen again. Because each time the answer is like slightly different and I'm like, I found it, figured it out, I've got it. Until I think like the last one, which was late last year, early this year, where I was like, I don't have the answer this time. (laughs) Like this is probably something that will happen again. That feeling of having an epiphany and being like, I've cracked it, (laughs) is very relatable. You know, you do one (laughs) yoga class and you think you fixed yourself. I mean, I'm sure you do learn a lot through these processes. So firstly, I'm interested in what some of those kind of breakthroughs were, even if they didn't totally stick. And also just in general, if it is something that you know you're having regularly, do you feel like you come out of each one with a skill set that's going to help you in the next one? Or do you just start fresh every time you kind of go back into a hole? Well, we never start fresh. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so you're making me think of, I remember when I was in psych hospital a bunch of years ago, and I remember going to see the therapist I was seeing at the time, and I was like, what is better at this point? Like, what does that even look like? And I also remember while I was in hospital, one of, I think it was a social worker in there telling me it would take me two years to get better. I'm like, what even is that? Um, because I'm like, this isn't a, like I've, by that point I had already dealt with these kinds of things for a long time. And I was like, I know that it's worse now, but it's never not there completely. You definitely learn stuff. What I think has been really interesting for me is that I've both learned stuff and then had a bunch of stuff that I felt like I've needed to unlearn. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Are there any topics that you just don't want to talk about or you are like, this is a part of my private life that I'm not going to bring into my public life? (laughs) So (laughs) my immediate response was like money, but I was like, fuck, I've already done that. I remember actually when I was doing Starving Artist, I remember talking to the psychologist I was seeing at the time about it. And... um, uh, (laughs) She was like, you're doing what? (laughs) She was like, but you have so much stuff around that topic. Why are you doing that? And I was like, yeah, it's a good question. Um, In terms of things, I don't know, like maybe, probably. I mean, I make decisions all the time. So with this latest um, podcast, there's a bunch of stuff that didn't end up in for personal reasons, like like some stuff that you like that might get too much 
backlash or I might receive too much um, criticism for that in a way that I think would be really detrimental. I find it particularly scary at the moment when I look at how people can be shamed publicly. That's like, you know, that's another one of my number one fears. Like when you look at what happened with like Yasmin Abdel-Majid um, over her tweet uh, on Remembrance Day and, you know, John Ronson's book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, you know, I think that culturally we have a lot to learn about behaving online, yet I hope that it will get better, um, that I think at this point we're at a point where people really want to pile on. That, from my experience of doing this podcast and just in general, is the number one fear. Young people in media, but probably, like, you know, young people, you know, in quotation marks, is, like, the public humiliation of being dragged, being, like, vilified. Yeah, 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 totally. And I'm, yeah, I think that that's stopped me in a bunch of ways. Like, even with, when I mentioned before that I've considered taking down all my work, one of the projects that has been really anxiety-inducing is um, being honest with my ex. If I stop being humble for a moment, that's also what makes it a great project, and that's what a lot of the feedback is. People are like, I don't usually hear people have conversations this honest. But also I know that people could take a bunch of stuff out of context, and and I listen back to a bunch of it now. I'm like, <sighs> and. I think that what's funny is that people who don't work in media and who don't profess their honest opinions and then look back at it a few years later don't don't know what that's like. If you have done that, you, you know you have a really you have end up having a really different attitude to what people have said online. Because I'm like, I I saw someone I follow on Twitter the other day. They said something like, "Look, I'm willing to just make a rule with myself that." If some if someone said something over a year ago and they've and I'm not into it but they've apologized and shown growth I'm that's fine like apology you know accepted that's not a it's fine because people's attitudes change particularly at the moment like change so so quickly I don't know I think that's why I kind of I'm enjoying being a bit underground because uh Yeah, public humiliation sounds awful. It's also why, you know, we say it's so hard to talk about your mental health or how much you earn or your relationship with your ex, but a lot of the time those really painful topics are actually a lot safer than giving an opinion on something outside of yourself. Because if I'm like, I don't agree with you, you can always fall back on being like, well, this is my experience. Something I've kind of thought about a lot, especially recently, is we're having this much larger mental health conversation, but it's not really getting, it's not really more nuanced. Like, I do feel like I read the same article again and again. And that's why I really liked that thing you said about travel, because I think that there are still these kind of pockets that we think we're having this conversation, but we're not really opening up all the kind of 2 a.m. in the morning moments. (laughs) There was a really good article on Broadly, actually, that I read this week that I've been thinking about a lot, and it's about, you know, the guilt of, like, leaving someone who has depression. That really cut through because I was like, I still think there's a lot of stuff around, like, the guilt of what if 
the happy ending you want isn't the same as the happy ending that everyone else thinks that you should have. Mm. I mean, I guess that's kind of with the travel thing too. It's like, what if you actually don't want what people are telling you will make you happy? Yeah, that's a really great example of a good article. It makes me think of one of the things that has kind of come out of this podcast that I'm doing is, is, or that I've been thinking about a lot recently is like the trickiness of relationships when one of you is like really in the shit. Um, <laughs> and I have all these recordings of me waking up my boyfriend at 3 a.m., you know, just seeing like, I think I've ruined my life. I'm totally convinced of it. <laughs> and him kind of like talking it through with me. And um, it's really, it really makes things very complicated. And I think that, yeah, I think that the conversation is getting more nuanced. But I, I was thinking as I was making um, this recent podcast about my experiences of being suicidal, like saying I'm suicidal right now um, is not a thing that you're like allowed to say. It's like you need to kind of, you know, we need to do something about that. And I think it's because uh, that's kind of a world for mental health. Not Does that make sense? We have this idea that that's a word for, world for mental health rather than, um, you know, common discourse, I suppose. And a lot of our mental health conversations are in the rearview mirror. Yeah, 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 totally. And I think that's interesting, but one of the things that I found really beautiful was that I had all these recordings from when I was suicidal and all of my thoughts at the time, which sometimes were kind of smart. Like, the, like they weren't the thoughts of someone, you know, all over the place. And that, that sounds kind of common sense, you know, because, you know, you can be suicidal and you can be like I was, going to your normal job, like doing your normal work and also losing your shit at the same time. Like at work, I have this recording of me typing on the computer to a crisis chat line while I'm at work. <laughs> <laughs> didn't make it into the show, but I was like, oh, wow, isn't this... That's not what we think of when we think of people being suicidal. How does it feel to listen back to those things now when you can kind of objectively be like, that's not a crazy thought? Well, I don't think I necessarily think it's not a crazy thought. I feel like it's a really, it's interesting to look back at it now and I can see it and I I know the thoughts. I know the like doom thoughts um, intellectually, but they don't hit home in the same way. So I know intellectually what I was thinking. I know that it makes me anxious, but like I don't have the same bodily reaction and that's what I find kind of interesting about looking back on it. And I think that's also what I find helpful because, you know, that like no feeling is final. Having a record of it is like, yeah, it isn't. <laughs> it does move. It, like not as fast as you want it to, not in the way that you want it to. But um, the most recent time when I was in Doomtown, I was with my current boyfriend and he would he would look after all of my drugs for me so like my prescription drugs 
And <laughs> we had this nightly ritual where I would like close my eyes and my ears and like start singing some song that I was making up so that I couldn't hear or see where he was keeping my drugs. And so he would get them for me and give them to me, blah, 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 blah. It's like quite a practical but also like fun response to the gravity of the situation. Because of the fear that if you knew where they were, you may overdose? Yeah. So so I think a lot of it is like the fear of what might happen. So for me, I like kind of like get rid of stuff that could be dangerous because it makes me really anxious to be around um, when I'm feeling really, really hopeless. I remember like a few months later finding the drugs that he'd hidden and like just not being afraid of them. You know, I'm like, oh, wow, isn't this funny? This box of drugs had so much more meaning not that long ago. And I know that version of myself. I've known it a few times and I can like touch it, but I can't hold it in the same way. Like it's not present in the same way. That's really interesting. The way something like that can go from being a weapon to just an object. Yeah, just a neutral like, huh, funny. And I think that's the same way when you look back at anything nostalgic. You look at back at items from old you, you're like, oh, wow, wasn't I a different person then? Um, so I think that happens with everything. It's just so funny when it, that kind of change happens in a small amount of time. We began this podcast talking about, or you introduced this really interesting idea of kind of a doppelganger or another self. But something that I find really interesting about you is that you have a real doppelganger. You have a twin. (laughs) Yeah. Does she have similar experiences as you? No. I remember actually, so (laughs) I say sometimes like my sister is, my twin sister is like trolling me. Because she's a very, very capable, very successful person in her own right, but in a more kind of normative way, if that makes sense. And when I'm really in Doomtown, I get totally obsessed with the idea that that she's, like, killing it more than me. But, I mean, it's like a sliding doors moment. You've got this version of you out there that's living a different life. Exactly. And, uh, and, you know, one one of the very frequented ideas is that if I didn't have these experiences, maybe my life would be like hers. <laughs> you know, for good and bad. Um, yeah, she's such an interesting one. I love her. And I was talking to her not that long ago, and I remember asking her if she got anxious. And she was like, no, nah, I don't think I really do. I think I get stressed, but not anxious. And I was like, <laughs> I wish. Do you ever feel jealous of her? Absolutely. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Completely. She knows that. I'm pretty sure. (laughs) From my, I mean, I don't have a twin, but I would feel like it would be kind of stressful to have this person in your life. I think a lot of siblings, I have a sister and a brother and, you know, we're all similar, but there's always a feeling of like some things are just easier for one of us than others. Mm. And it can be a hard thing to digest. But I mean, having a twin, that would be tenfold. Yeah, totally. And we were always quietly very competitive. So, yeah, I mean, I think it is really painful. And sometimes, I mean, this is an awful story So about me, so I don't know why I'm telling it. But I remember when we were teenagers, I remember one time when I was, like, feeling 
really yuck. I told her I wish she'd never been born because I felt like if I if she wasn't in my life, I wouldn't have this painful stick to beat myself with. But obviously that's not her fault, obviously. I apologise. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's something that I, I, yeah, it's something that I find difficult. I mean, from your point of view, you have this person that is this counterpoint to compare yourself to. But has she ever said what it's like for her to have this, like, alternative version of herself out there feeling all these things that she has never felt and can't imagine I'm sure we did have a candid conversation a while ago um where what's interesting is so I I'm quite open with my family about what's going on but in a like quite a superficial way like when I was in hospital doing hospital programs I joke about what was going on in hospital I joke about the fact that we had to get these name tags to go to the hospital to go into the hospital to get lunch and they'd say day program on them and then at one point they changed them to say DP <laughs> which I was like oh god guys that's a genre of porn like what are you doing and um so I'd like tell stories like that I thought that stuff was funny but I wouldn't tell them the you know I wouldn't tell them the severity of what was going on if I was, you know, suicidal, I wouldn't call them and be like, this is what's happening. So they didn't really know the depth of it, if that makes sense. So what was interesting was being in a hospital a few years ago made those conversations have to happen. And I think that meant that all of my family kind of understood more what was going on, which was helpful. Um... Yeah, but I think I think what's funny is like so I'm sure I'm pretty sure siblings do this as well, but I think it's more apparent for twins that there's this process of of delineating between the two of you. So being like, "We're different." <laughs> and I remember my sister telling me like, "You kind of did all that work for me." <laughs> she was like, you could just go and do your stuff and she'd be like, great, I can just do my thing and, like, we're delineated because you did the work on being the weird one. (laughs) Great, perfect. Thanks for listening to The Anxiety Hour. If you need someone to talk to, mental health support is available 24 hours a day through Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14 and at lifeline.org.au. The Anxiety Hour is a Vice Australia podcast. It's hosted by me, Wendy Seifert, and produced by Laura Appelt. Sound recording and editing comes from Jeffrey O'Connor. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.